I wonder, have you ever gotten something completely wrong? Never? Have you ever believed something that you were so certain you were right about, but found out later you were wrong? Now, it could be something as insignificant as, you know, not having the right directions to some location. You know, you just thought it was this direction, but in reality it was somewhere else, or you took the wrong road. It could have been something like that. Maybe it was something as insignificant as, uh, you know, getting a question on a major test wrong. Maybe it was something like uh, forgetting your pin for your ATM. And you keep punching in the number, and you know that's the number, but it keeps saying reject, reject, reject. And then it keeps your card after so many times. And then it's like, oh. None of those are life-threatening, as frustrating as they may be. But could it be something else that you believed that you were so certain of? Something that you believed in, like uh, when I grew up, you know, uh, I thought that eating carrots would make my eyes better. And I, at one time, wore glasses and very thick glasses. And so I didn't like carrots, but I forced myself to eat carrots because I had heard carrots, eating carrots, make your eyes better. How many of you believe that? Do you know that is World War II propaganda by the British? They, 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 pro, they, they announced that to the Germans so that they would be afraid of their pilots because their pilots were such great shots because they ate carrots. How about, how about this? Yeah. How about this one? You believe, you believe something, something like this, that wearing, not wearing a coat in the wintertime actually gives, gives you a greater possibility of getting a cold. That's false. There's no medical evidence whatsoever to prove that true. Now, I am having more and more reality to this one. You know, how many of you believe that you lose 90% of your heat, your body heat, through your head? And some of us believe that. And I am starting to feel that more as I get thinner at the top. And yet, there is, the medical fact is, and physiologically, we lose all body heat at the same rate throughout our body, and it just depends on what parts of our body are covered and which ones are not covered. So we believe certain things that are just factually not true. And again, some of these are just, you know, insignificant in life. But what if you believed, what if you believed with all your heart that you could fly without any assistance of any apparatus, and you climbed to the top of the, I'm sorry, Willis Tower, and you dove off to prove that you could fly? Now, that might be life-threatening. What if you believed that you could drink a whole gallon of muriatic acid, and it wouldn't affect your body? That could be life-threatening, maybe. And you know that what I'm saying is true. There are certain things in life that you can believe or, and you could, you could be wrong about. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. But there are things in life that we cannot afford to get wrong. And that is same, the same thing is true when it comes to what we believe about God, what we believe about God's Word, what we believe that God's Word teaches. There are certain things that we say, you know what, uh, we're not going to agree totally on this because this is, you know, this is something we have to give grace on. You know, the Bible may not be crystal clear on certain teachings, and so we can give each other grace and we can afford each other a difference of opinion. But then there are other beliefs, there are other things that we call doctrines of Scripture that 
we just can't afford to get wrong. And so today, we're launching a four-week series on doctrines that you can't afford to get wrong. And so today, I'm going to have the privilege of talking to you about don't tamper with the gospel, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there are certain doctrines that as a grandfather, and in grandparents you understand this, and as parents you understand, that there are certain things in your house that you allow to stay on this bottom shelf at this level. Because you have grandkids that like to play with them. And then there are certain things that you don't want messed with. You, you, you want to make sure that they don't get broken. So you put them on the top shelf. Unless you have children like we had children that can climb. You know? But there are certain doctrines that are top shelf doctrines. And so for the next four weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. These top shelf doctrines that you just don't mess with. You don't tamper with these because these, these are so crucial, so critical, that our eternal future depends on getting these right. And at Village Church, we're going to be talking about those. You know, when you think about these things, you know, I don't know how much church experience you had or church exposure you've had, but these top shelf doctrines and these middle shelf doctrines and bottom shelf doctrines They've been debated by the church since its inception. They've been debated by Christians and by uh, theologians, by pastors and preachers and missionaries. So how do we know, how do we know which ones are top shelf, don't mess with, and those down here that we can give grace on? How do we know that? Well, this is what we're going to find out as we go through this series. When the Bible is crystal clear, when the Bible is so, so clear in what it teaches and what it says that there is no room for debate or argument. Those are top shelves. And when the Bible is a little less clear, we can give a little more grace. We're going to be talking about these things that you just can't afford to get wrong. Today, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I believe is the clearest, the most concise, the best summarization of what the apostles believed about the gospel. What is the gospel? What, what is it? So as you turn there, I want to ask you a few questions. How do I know what the gospel is? You know, many of you know this, but not all. There's another side of my life besides ministry, and it's cars and car repair. And, you know, you, as a guy who does that, you uh, subscribe to many different magazines and different uh, books and things. And sometimes, even in our culture that is less faith-based, they will use the term that, oh, you want to read so-and-so because they've got the gospel of car repair or the gospel of cars. You know, and it's like, hmm, somebody of me, of, of faith, it's like, well, I don't like the way you use that word. What is the gospel when it comes to what the Bible says the gospel is? Well, the Bible, as it uses this word gospel, it simply means good news. And the good news is what we're going to be talking about today, that we can't afford to get wrong. And the Apostle Paul so believed in this thing called the good news, and now we know Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but of the 76 times that the word gospel is used in the New Testament, Paul used it 60. 
He wanted to make sure that people understood the gospel, the gospel that had impacted his life, it changed his life, and the gospel that can change everyone else that understands it, that hears it, and gets it right. That's how important it was to the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to be sharing with you the same passage that Renee read uh, in our scripture time reading. So follow along as I begin in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. We need to back up before we get any farther and just, what, what is the context here? Paul is ending 1 Corinthians, the book, the letter to the Corinthians, and this church had messed up all kinds of things. They were really confused. They were really doing a lot of things wrong, not only in their church polity, but their church practices, their church theology. They had gotten a lot wrong. And Paul is going to end this letter in a way that says, you know what? You got to get this right. You can get all these other things wrong, but you've got to get this one right. This one is important. It is of primary importance. So he tells them, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. And then he gets a little sarcastic. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. A little sarcasm. So let's talk about this gospel. How do I receive this good news about Jesus that Paul is going to talk about? It, here's the thing. Receiving the good news, receiving the gospel always creates new life. It always creates new life. When Jesus was talking to the religious leader of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he compared receiving the gospel to new birth, to physical birth. And he said some things about that, that when you receive the gospel, things change. Things happen. Paul, was going to, Paul would talk about this in his letter to the church of Ephesians, the Ephesian church. And he said, do you understand before you received the gospel, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but you were made alive in Christ. Receiving the gospel always creates new life. Always. And just as a baby grows in the mother's womb for a period of time and then launches into life, the same thing is true with receiving the gospel. Receiving the gospel always starts, it always begins with a process. Just as the baby begins to grow in the mother's womb, there's a process that's happening. We call that a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said no one could come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. So there's got to be this pre-work. There's got to be this stuff that's happening that no one sees, but the person that's about to receive the gospel understands. There's a work of the Holy Spirit. There's a process that brings a person to understand and, and, and give more insight and more understanding about who Jesus is, what the Bible is, what the gospel is all about. There's a pre-work that happens. But then there's an event. And just as there's an event at the birth of a child, there's an event that happens when a person says, I get it. Jesus died for me. I surrender. I understand, I accept for myself. 
there's a point, there's an event that happens that it's no longer up there where, you know, it's kind of loosey-goosey and I can't quite get my hands around it. And, and, and the gospel is received and then it becomes for them. It becomes real. It becomes, there's an ownership there that this is now the message for me and I get it. And the light goes off. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel not only creates that new life, it continues that new life. There's a process that continues to grow. There's a change that happens and a person receives the gospel. They continue to grow and they continue as they learn more about what the Bible teaches and about what, what God would have them do in, in their life for him, that there's a change that happens. It's a process. Uh, Paul talked about being conformed to the image of Jesus. So there's a process of this growth. Receiving this gospel always is done by grace. It's always done by grace through faith. And, and we cannot do anything, anything to earn it, to deserve it, to get it. All we can do is receive it. All we can do is accept it. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. You know, it's by God's grace through, through trusting him and what he's done on the cross for us that we receive this message. You know, that, that's why the writers of the New Testament, they call it the gift of God. The gospel is the gift of God. In other passages, it's called the free gift of God. There is nothing you can do to earn it, buy it, pay for it, deserve it, nothing. But the question is, and I don't know if you've ever asked anybody this question or questions like this, or if you've ever received questions like this, probably the most difficult questions to ask or the most difficult questions to answer by some people are questions like this. When were you saved? When did you ask Jesus to forgive your sin? When did you trust Jesus for the first time? When did you accept the gospel of Jesus? Now, if you've ever asked somebody that question or those questions, you know you're putting somebody on the spot because they're going to have to give a response. They're going to have to answer in some way. And if you've ever been asked those questions, you've had no greater privilege than to tell them what God has done for you. It is a huge opportunity and a huge uh, blessing to be asked that question. So please don't feel like, you know, man, they're, they're putting me on the spot. No, they're giving you a platform to share your, your message of what the gospel has done in your life. Now, when it comes to this, not everyone knows the exact moment that they accepted Jesus. Not everyone knows the exact second or, or, or time or, or year. And that's important to know. For me, I don't know that time. I don't know that day. I don't know that year. I know I was about 11 years old, and I was privileged enough for Renee and I a few years ago to go to the church that, that I walked down uh, the aisle. Back in those days, they gave a, uh, a, an evangelical invitation at the end of the service, and I, you know, I was sitting right here, honey, and you know, this is what happened. I was about 11 years old. You know, I don't know the day. I don't know the year, but I know the place. I know the event, and so as important as that is, what's more important, if you don't know that event, is to know that you're being saved. And Paul talks about that, about, you know, here's, here's the thing that we need to understand. If you know the day, you know the time that you ask Jesus to forgive your sin, you receive the gospel, 
then that's great. For us that don't know those, that date, here's what I want to encourage you with. Just as parents know the day when their child is born, and they have a birth certificate with a date stamped on that for them to always remember, the same is true. When, when the light goes off for you of receiving the gospel, when you know you've, okay, I, I've crossed the line. Jesus died for me, and I accept that for myself. I know God knows. God knows, and, and I wonder, you know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I wonder if there's a date stamp there as well. It says it happened on such and such date. I don't know. But I guarantee you God knows, just like parents know when their children are born. Now, when asked that question, when I've asked people that question, you know, for many years I was a children's pastor and I'd talk to kids about asking Jesus to be their Savior and when did they do that. Kids, young children, can, can very clearly, I was, mommy and daddy were with me and we were here and this is what happened. They can tell you a day. It's very common, very common for kids to know the exact time or, or the event. For adults, especially adults who are a little older when they receive Jesus and receive the gospel for themselves. It's very common for them when I ask them, when did you ask Jesus to forgive your sins? They usually tell me a process. Well, it started with this, and it started here, and it came here, and this is what's now happening. And I said, whoa, 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 when did the event happen? They have a hard time putting their finger on the event. All right now, again, I think it's important to know the, the event, know the time. But if you don't, here's what's even more important. What's more important is what Paul talked about here in verse 2, which I read a minute ago. He said, by which you are being saved. You know, in my uh, days of Bible college, in the second year Greek class, a class full of future pastors and missionaries, youth pastors, we're studying Greek and all this stuff, and our professor came in and he asked this question, I'll never forget it, and I share this with you for this very point. He started off not with, you know, some Greek exercise, but he said, gentlemen, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know I would ask it this way. How do you know you've received the gospel for yourself? And, you know, some guys threw their hands up. Well, you know, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I prayed this prayer on such and such date. And, you know, they talked about the uh, event. And he says, well, let me back up here a little bit. Let me ask you the question a little different. How do you know you're alive? And none of you should be throwing out a birth certificate at me or a date that you were born. Or even what you did when you were three years old or nine years old or 15 years old. You should be telling me something that's happening today that tells me you're alive. How do you know you've received the gospel for yourself? So I'm going to say the same thing that he did. You do the things that people who know Jesus as their Savior do. You feel the things that people who know Jesus and have accepted his gospel feel. And believe the things that Christians and people have trusted the gospel believe. So here's what I'm saying. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you can sin and, be, and, and have no conviction, I question, have you really received the gospel? But if you sin, if you make a mistake, you know, you hear this inner voice in your heart or in your head, and it's not Jiminy Cricket, and you know it's the Holy Spirit saying, uh, Mm -mm 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 no. 
or you know, you, you start heading in a direction that you shouldn't be heading in your spiritual life, and you don't, if you don't, you should feel, you should feel the Holy Spirit pulling you back and saying, that's not wise. That's not a good choice. If you're not encouraged when you do things that you know would please the Lord and are aligned with God's word, when you do things like that and you hear the Holy Spirit or feel the Holy Spirit saying, well done, good and faithful servant, then those are, those are evidences that you are being saved, that the work that the Holy Spirit began in you is continuing. But if you don't have those experiences, you don't feel the Holy Spirit, you don't have the results of a new life. Remember I talked about it always creates new life. If there's not a new life, then there's probably not an acceptance that's ever happened of the true gospel. But here's the question. Being saved... Being saved from what? What are we being saved from? Now, that was a common phrase back in the 70s and 80s. We'd ask people, are you, are you saved? Brother, are you saved? And, and I would, you know, do that from time to time. And people would look at me, especially people that don't have a faith background, and saved from what? What are you talking about? I'm not drowning. You know, I'm, I'm doing okay in life. Here's what it comes down to. What would cause you to cry out for help? And usually we cry out for help when we're desperate, when we're in trouble. And the greater the trouble, the greater desperation that we're facing, the greater the outcry. And here's the problem. In our culture today and in many churches today, this thing called sin is very, it almost is erased from, from any document and any type of preaching. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about how far sin has taken us. Our culture doesn't even, I mean, they laugh at things like that, you know, about sin. You know, and so to say that, well, our sin separates us from God, most people don't understand how far does it separate us from God. You know, well, you know and, and people have this mindset when it comes to their understanding the gospel. Well, when I get to heaven... As long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God's going to take me in. But that's a false gospel. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you can sin in one time, one place, and that one sin will eternally separate you from a holy God. We, we've lost understanding of how bad sin is and how far sin drives us and takes us away from God. And how that does one sin leads us down a path that continues us away from God. And so what we don't understand and what Paul clearly understands is that my sin separates me. My sin it causes me to cry out to God in desperation, save me, help me. Help me understand this thing called the gospel, this news about Jesus. And the greater we understand sin, the greater outcry. And that's why there is really a truth in, before someone can receive the gospel, they have to understand sin. Listen to what Paul said in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. You know, Paul says that the gospel is of first importance. The original language uses a superlative there that means really it is of the greatest importance. I know, 
Paul would say, I've written 14 chapters to you. But what I'm about to write in this last chapter is of the greatest importance. You guys can mess up on all these other things. You got to get those right. But this one, this one, this thing called the gospel is of the greatest importance you get right. It is unchanging and must be clear. And so he's basically saying, don't tamper with this. Don't tamper with the fact that Christ died for our sins. There is a purpose, was a purpose for Jesus to die on the cross. You know, and so much of our culture and so many churches teach that Jesus was a good man, that he was a holy man, that he was a righteous man, that, that he was compassionate and did wonderful things. But they miss the fact that, no, Jesus was the son of God who died in place of me. He died for my sins. He was the willing sacrifice for me and to make a way so I could be forgiven. There was a greater purpose. Then he says, don't tamper with this. In accordance with the scripture. The Bible is God's chosen way in which he reveals his will and his way to us. And if you know anything about the way Paul writes, he writes like a lawyer. He builds, every time he starts getting into one of these uh, discussions, one of these discourses, he starts building a case just like a lawyer. And we need to back ourselves up and say, okay, Paul, okay, I understand Jesus died for our sins. A lot of times we think wrongfully that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. There's more to the gospel than that. And Paul stops right there. He says, that's according to the scriptures. And there is a reason that he stops and, and, and says, hold on, wait a minute. Let me, let me explain something here. Why is this so important? Why would he insert this phrase according to the scriptures, according to the, the Old Testament? And it's because he knows that for some people, this gospel could be explained away as, well, you know, this is a modern man-made thought process, a do-good way of getting yourself better. Maybe it's a church teaching that the church developed, you know, over the centuries that, you know, we're going to tell people to accept Jesus as their Savior because it's, it's, a, it's a new fad, it's a new thing. But Paul says, no, 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 no. This was in God's plan all along. This has been the way he communicated all you got to do is go back to the very first book of the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall where Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God, we see the first indication in Scripture that that didn't take God by surprise. He didn't throw his hands up and say, um, Holy Spirit, Jesus, what are we going to do? They, they blew it. I mean, what, what, what are we going to do? He didn't do that. He said, oh, no, no, no. That was in eternity past. We had this plan. We had this covered. We knew that Jesus, Jesus volunteered. He's going, to, he's going to go to the cross. He's going, to, he's going to sacrifice himself on behalf of these idiots that get it wrong so often. You know, this is the same way in which Jesus dealt with his people, his disciples, his followers, because a lot of times they didn't get it. And I want to take you back to a story found in Luke chapter 24. And just so you kind of know what's going on, Jesus has already died on the cross. He's been buried. He's rose from the grave. His disciples are, are terribly discouraged. They're depressed. They're confused because they thought this Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And they believed in him. They trusted him. But he died. He was crucified on the cross. It's over. 
We've wasted our time and our thoughts and our beliefs. And then the scripture picks up in Luke 24 where Jesus, after he's rose from the grave, these two guys are on the road to a city called Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside of them and they share with him their confusion, their depression. And Jesus talks with them. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus doesn't listen to them and say, ta-da, I'm here. Look, he didn't say that. That's not what happened. What the Bible says is this, that, in the, that he began with the book of Moses, or the books of Moses, and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things that were concerning himself. Jesus used this all the time when he was talking to his disciples and talking to the Pharisees. But the scripture says, and the scripture says, and the scripture says, and the scripture says all these things about the Messiah, about the gospel. And so he used the same thing. The Bible says this in verse uh, four. It says that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. So again, don't tamper with this. Jesus was buried. Don't tamper with this. He was raised on the third day. Don't tamper with this in accordance with the scripture. Same phrase a second time. Don't tamper with these things. This is the gospel. And then he goes on, Paul says this. He says, then he appeared to Cephas. If you don't know, Cephas is Peter's other name. So it was Peter. Then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And I think most of us know, means some of them have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Don't tamper with this, he appeared. He appeared after the resurrection. He appeared after his death on the cross. You know, there is a reason for this to be included in the gospel. It is the proof that his life didn't end on that cross and in that tomb. That there is life for him and for us after that. You know, Paul so believed this, he said, this is not hearsay, folks. You can go to almost 500 that saw him at one time, or you can go to all these other witnesses that saw him. And often, we're accused in our secular culture as Christians, you believe something about Jesus that can't be proven. And we're accused of that. And yet, Paul says, there were 500 people who saw him at one time. There is great evidence of this. And I just want you to just consider a couple of things here. In a trial, in a, in a legal system, the judge and jury, they always want to hear evidence, but the greatest thing, they want to see the evidence. And that's what, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you can see the evidence. You can talk to the people who saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. This is essential to the true gospel because the best evidence is always seen. You can always see and then know. And that's the reason that Jesus and Paul believed in the resurrection. And not only the resurrection, but the evidence that he was alive after that. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This truth is what pushed me over the edge when I was a teenager and was 
questioning my, my faith in Jesus, questioning my faith in the gospel. And, you know, it's like, well, is this thing really real? And I'm hearing other things that it could be, but it may not be 100%. And then I came across this statement. If the Jewish leaders, if the Romans, if they wanted to stamp out, if they wanted to crush, if they wanted to end the, the teaching of the early church, all they had to do is one thing, produce the dead body of Jesus. Bring him out, put him on display, show the world, show the, the people of the day. Hey, you guys keep talking about this resurrected Jesus. There he is. There's his body. And it would have crushed the movement called Christianity. But we know that couldn't have happened. We know that didn't happen because they could not produce the resurrected Jesus. And I don't know if you know this. Think about this. Jesus could have died on the cross, been buried, rose from the grave, dusted himself off, taken off his uh, grave clothes, and gone straight to heaven. Couldn't he? Couldn't he have done that? And that would have been a resurrected Jesus. But he didn't choose to stop there. He, he chose to show himself as the resurrected son of God to hundreds of people in dozens of situations, in dozens of places, so that they could know without any doubt the message of the gospel was true. So listen to this. What are the essential elements of the real gospel? According to Paul, this is what it is. That Jesus died for our sins that Jesus was buried, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection, and all of this, all this message, all this is revealed in Scripture. That is the gospel. That's the true gospel. And I don't know if you thought about this or not. How would you feel if you went to a church for some length of time, and I know some of you come from different church backgrounds or uh, have some religious background um, in your past, and you were in a church who taught you something just shy of this or quite different than this. How would you feel that for years, 5, 10, 15, or almost your entire life, you were in a church that taught you a false gospel and didn't teach you these four pieces of the gospel? I've talked with some of you, and you've told me how you feel. You feel cheated. You feel misled. You feel deceived. And that's why it's so important to get it right. So let me ask you this question. How do I know what the gospel can do? How do I know what the gospel can do? You know, because receiving the gospel, receiving it by grace through faith, receiving it does some things. It is not stagnant. The gospel release, releases us from the power of sin. I read this verse a minute ago in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. And so often we miss what's actually there in the original language. Because it's more than just because of our sin. It's in place of our sin. It's on behalf of our sin. And here's, what, here's how it works. When you receive the gospel, the true gospel, and the further you lean into that gospel, not only do you understand that Jesus died in behalf of you, in your place, but the power of the gospel, and the more you lean into it, the more power you have over sin, and the less power that sin has over you. 
because you're leaning into something that Jesus has done for you and you lean into this truth that he is, he is received by grace through faith and then your life begins to change and as you lean further into him, power, sin has less and less power over you. I didn't say it ends, but it has less and less power. The gospel also unleashes God's grace. It's received by God's grace. Listen to what Paul said in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. And it was by grace, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're saved through faith. It's by grace. It's not by the works that we've done that we receive him. And not only is it received by grace, it's also lived by grace. And, and we, we sometimes think, well, I come to faith in Jesus, I receive his gospel, it ends there. No, it doesn't. That gospel message and that gospel that's come into you creates life, and now you live in that grace. Paul said these words, but by the grace of God, by, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and it is his grace toward me that was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. The them there is the other apostles. Though, not, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was with, uh, that was with me. Whether then it is I, was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. None of us can change our past. And I don't know what your past was before you received the gospel. We know what Paul's past was. But we can let God redeem our past through the grace and through the gospel that, that we're talking about here to change our future, but also change the future of others. And we don't work harder. Paul's not saying, I work harder to get grace. No, he says, I work harder so that others can receive the grace. I work harder that I can die to myself and let Christ live through me. You know, Paul, when you think about this guy, knowing his past... He could have received Jesus on the road to Damascus. He could have hunkered down in some hole and said, I don't deserve to be a part of what God's plan is. And I will just, I will just keep to myself. He could have had a pity party and said, you know, I don't deserve it. You know, I am nowhere near what these other apostles were or these other church leaders were. And maybe you feel that same way. But he didn't. He let his past be transacted with the grace of God and the gospel of God to make a difference in the lives of others. And the grace of God always is multiplied through us to others. And that's what he said there. We preach and then you believe. As we live out this gospel, others are blessed because of it. And then the gospel restores hope. Probably the greatest or one of the greatest human needs is hope. It, it ranks right up there with love. We gotta have hope, we gotta have love. And if we have those, you know, you, you gotta have something to look forward to and invest in. Listen to what Paul said in verse 12. Now, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, this is where they've got things wrong. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we, uh, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God had raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. See the sarcasm? Our eternal destiny is dependent on getting this gospel right. Then he goes on to say, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. Again, he's just harping on this. This is of eternal consequence that we get right. And you are still in your sins. Then those who are also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not just perished in the grave, they're forever perished. If this, is, if this resurrection thing is not true. If then, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most be pitied. That's how, how much is at stake of getting this right. Only the true gospel can save you. Without it, you're still in your sins. Without it, you're destined for an eternal separation from God. Without it, you're not being saved to change the world and to be changed from the inside out. Without it, there's no real purpose in life. Without it, your death is going to end the best years of your life. That's how critical getting the gospel right really is. But there is hope. Listen to what your hope is, and Paul gives this in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what Paul's summarizing here. No gospel or false gospel equals no hope. We've got to get the gospel right in order to, to have hope. And the, there, the hope is based on certainty. Christ did rise from the grave, grave. There's plenty of witnesses to testify to that. Our faith is based on substance. We can have hope. We can have assurance of hope. Christ has raised from the dead, and we can believe this for ourselves. And this assurance gives us that hope that we can share with others. So I want to ask you some so what questions. We end every message with so what. Where do I go from here? My question is simple. Have you found, as, been, as I've been sharing today, wait a minute, I, I, I'm not sure I believe any of that. I'm not sure I've accepted that. I'm not sure where I'm at with this gospel thing. Would you consider that what you've been believing if you believe in believing something that was wrong or other than the true gospel that we've just said it comes from Scripture, would you consider that you might be wrong? Would you consider the possibility that maybe the Bible is right? Maybe this thing called the gospel is different than what I've believed. Would you consider that and be open to just answer that question, maybe I could be wrong? And if you can do that, honestly... That brings you to the second question. What am I going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? If you've been, been, if you've been believing something other than what has just been shared, what is, it, is at stake is your eternal state of living or dying being separated from God. You've got to get this right. Will you accept this message called the gospel?
and what Jesus did for you and what he wants to do in you and through you. Maybe today you're ready to do that and be glad to talk to you about that. Anyone on staff or anyone on the stage would be glad to do that. But here's another question. If you have received the true gospel, you do believe what what I've shared with you from Scripture. Can you share that message with someone you know that needs to hear it? Can you be bold enough to say, you know what? I've got a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a relative that needs to be needs to be told, not preached at, but be, have this message shared with. Is there someone that I need to share this message with? Because their eternal separation with God is at stake. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your word is so clear. It is so crystal clear what the gospel really is. It is that you died on the cross for our sins, that you were buried, that you raised and were raised on that third day, that you appeared to many, many, many people to prove, to validate that you were the Son of God that had every every ability to die on behalf of your creation. Father, as we've Look to that. Help us to embrace it. Help us to share it with others. Help us to be changed by this message of the gospel so that others could be blessed as well. In Jesus' name, amen.